with me this morning to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. John when you're surprised and you may not have the presence of mind to think about all the people you'd like to thank if you do what you just did to me, uh, I I certainly uh, thank you to you all. I think I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you to uh, certainly my fellow pastor, Pastor John. And before that, uh, as intern uh, was significant and has been, continues to be a significant help to me. Uh, but then uh, through the course of time, uh, those who've served as deacons in our church who have assisted in uh, taking care of uh, serving the church in ways and helping uh, our church family in ways. And I'm just thankful for those that the Lord has called alongside uh, to serve, and um, you don't know what it's like, um, perhaps, but to see from time to time just the uh, opportunities that I have to fellowship with our church family and just be encouraged when I see God's grace in your lives, when I see uh, when I see God's grace at work in trials. Um, to be able to see that from the pastoral standpoint and just see Christ working through true faith and his grace to bring about a likeness to himself. And uh, really what that produces in that person's life when there is growth and change is joy but to see that and just watch that is it's a joy to me when paul said in a letter to thessalonians and other places and he spoke of the people that he had ministered to as his joy um and he talked about the day of the lord jesus that one of the causes for joy that day would not just be his own meeting of the lord but seeing God's people there with him, rejoicing with him. Um, and that may have had to do with his office, but I think it just had to do as well, just being a fellow Christian with them. And I just thank the Lord for what he has done, what he is doing. And I just would say thank you again. And really the praise belongs to God, because if there's any gifting or grace, it comes from him. There's any reason anything good comes out of this life, it's God. Anything bad comes out, it's sin. It's my sin. And so God deserves uh, the glory, and may he receive the glory. I want to draw your attention today to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. We're right in the middle of a narrative in the book of Acts, of uh, the healing of this lame man in chapter 3 who had never walked, the subsequent sermon that Peter had the opportunity to preach there in the temple, 
Solomon's porch. And then right in the midst of that, or you could say after some time had passed, but as Peter is still speaking, apparently John is as well, because chapter four begins with the words, as they were speaking, there's an interruption. We see this interruption, and then the witness to Christ, or the witness about Christ, is continued not only from the temple and Solomon's porch, but into the very leadership of Israel itself. And we see that in chapters uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So let's read through this portion together. Scripture says, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you, excuse me, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And amen, and may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. We have come into an evening scene. We can tell that in verse 3 at the end of the verse where it says, for it was already evening. Do you remember when Peter and John went to the temple? They came at the time of the sacrifice, the evening sacrifice. It's called the hour of prayer in chapter 3 and verse 1. And so considerable time has passed after this spectacular miracle. This man who had never walked is now walking and leaping and jumping attaching himself to Peter and John. Peter has preached a sermon to the gathered crowd. He's deflected any glory from himself. He has pointed to God as the source, and Christ specifically, Jesus, as the source of this miracle. It was in Jesus' name that he did this miracle. And as he explains in his sermon, who Jesus is, he draws attention to the fact that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the long-awaited Messiah spoken of in many of Israel's prophecies. And at the same time, he's declaring Jesus resurrected, risen again after he had been crucified. And all of these truths about him, he then convicts the crowd of their sin in rejecting him and calls them to repent. And that's critical because as we look at this chapter, we find the results of this sermon. We find that Peter's sermon, as he 
preached on this day brought great effect. Many people came to Christ. And so there are thousands, we could say, based upon the numbers given in verse 4, the number given in verse 4, there are thousands of people who were present, thousands who believed. This is front page news. This is a major event. Pentecost was major. 3,000 were saved that day. This is different in that there was no continued interaction between the apostles and the people that day, it seems they followed through with baptism, and then the life of the church began. But here, it's interrupted, and it's interrupted by the leadership. The leadership of the temple, the leadership, as we look at the rest of the chapter, the leadership of Israel. So there's a section here at the beginning of the chapter, which I would call, as we think about this big picture, these are the witnesses of Christ on trial. And what are they going to proclaim? They're going to proclaim that they're is no other name but the name of Jesus that they are preaching and who is responsible for what has been done on this day. But there's this sudden confrontation that takes place as they are speaking. And we are given some indication as to who uh, is confronting them. This would be the equivalent of law enforcement at the temple. The priests were in charge. The captain of the temple guard would be actually someone who would have officers at his disposal to be able to deal with any unrest. And then in verse 1 as well, it's the Sadducees. We've seen the Sadducees in the Gospels. They are mentioned as a group within uh, the book of Acts. The most notable thing perhaps we know about the Sadducees is that they did not believe in the resurrection, Luke says later in Acts 23, they also did not believe in spirits or angels. And uh, you may have heard the little quip that they're Sadducees because they don't believe in a resurrection and afterlife. That's why they're so sad, you see. That name, though, became uh, probably attached to them because the title or the, the, the name itself references a Hebrew word that means to be righteous. It was also the name of an individual, Zadok, which eventually became, it seems, formed into those who followed him in either the priestly office or uh, as a part of that priestly family that served in the temple. So when you think priest in the New Testament, that is an official office and position, but the Sadducees would be people who had certain beliefs and by family most likely were attached to the priestly uh, group. And it's this group that comes and confronts John and Peter. Notice in verse 2, why? Why are they upset? What did Peter and John do? Well, obviously we see that a man who has never walked has been healed. That's one thing. But the other thing is this gathering of people and the teaching that took place following it. Notice in verse 2, the issue at hand or the cause of the confrontation was that they are teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And this is annoying. I think that's the sense of that word as it says they are greatly disturbed. The word is a word from which we get our word annoyed. They're irritated. They're irritated for multiple reasons. One of the reasons is they're teaching the people. 
here are these two men, disciples of Jesus, coming to the temple, and they're suddenly teaching the same people that the priests were responsible to teach themselves as leaders of the nation. Remember, there were times where Jesus was confronted as well because he was teaching, and they were jealous of the crowd that followed Jesus. So there's the teaching, but it's also what they're teaching because it says proclaiming, and I'm just going to skip over the words in Jesus for a moment, the resurrection from the dead. They're teaching something that the Sadducees did not believe. In fact, some would say that even the Pharisees may have taken issue with what was going on because they were teaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection, a general resurrection, but the thought that someone would be raised from the dead before that resurrection in the future could have been a problem for the set, for the Pharisees. It certainly was a problem with the Sadducees because they didn't believe it at all. And you can remember, if you go back to the Gospels, the Sadducees tried to trip up Jesus when it came to that story of the seven uh, brothers for one bride. Remember that story? They tried to trip Jesus up and tried to get him to explain how that would work in the resurrection if all these brothers had the same woman and then the resurrection came, whose wife would she be? And Jesus dismissed them by saying, you really don't know what you're talking about. You don't understand that in the resurrection, they neither marry or are given in marriage. But these disciples are teaching the resurrection, but they're also teaching it through Jesus. Verse 2, it's really those words and that person who was a problem for them. They're preaching in Jesus. Who is Jesus according to these people? Who is Jesus according to those who are leading there in the temple? Jesus had been condemned as a blasphemer. Jesus had been crucified. He had been posted, so to speak, upon a tree. And anybody who is hanged on a tree is cursed of God. And so there were features of the very circumstances of Jesus' death, which pointed the opposite direction for them. Jesus was not someone to be admired or followed. He's a blasphemer. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Messiah. Yet he was not, in their thinking, even from Bethlehem, he certainly wasn't the king that they thought he would be, at least in terms of their own thinking. And they're done with Jesus. They thought they were done with Jesus. But here, Solomon's porch, as a man is healed, the name of Jesus is once again raised, exalted. He is claimed to be the Messiah. He's claimed to be the prophet like Moses. And that would have threatened them as well, to have someone who is on that stature a prophet like Moses in contrast with those who are leading the nation. That means that they would have to listen to him. And so they confront them, but not only do they confront them, they, verse 3, they arrest them and confine them overnight. Verse 3 says, they laid hands on them and put them in jail, just put them in confinement until the next day, for it was already evening. 
And you have to think if you're Peter and John and you saw what took place on that day, you see a man who has never walked, God used you to heal him. And then this crowd gathers and you're able to preach Christ and be a witness to this crowd. This is quite in keeping with what Jesus had foretold that they would be witnesses. But now they're in prison. But Jesus had prepared them for that too. Jesus had taught them that they would face persecution. Jesus had taught them this was not going to be an easy path. He said, take up your cross and follow me. And now they're a night in jail. But look at what happened. In spite of this confrontation, there is conversion. 5,000 men, verse 4 says. It says many of those who had heard the message believed. So it wasn't every single person. There were still those who did not receive Jesus on this day or believe the message that was being preached about him. But many did. Many who came to the hour of prayer, who saw this man leaping around, eventually made their way to hear Peter preach the gospel And this day, they believed in Jesus as the Messiah. They recognized him as the prophet like Moses, the suffering servant. And they turned from their sins, and they put their trust in Jesus. 5,000. 5,000 with faith. That's the word believed. They came to faith in Christ. They believed Peter's message. And I want you to notice the way that Luke words the end of this verse, it says, in the number of the men. He doesn't say the number of the people, but he has been talking about people. Look at verse 1, as they were speaking to the people. Middle of verse 2, as they were teaching the people. I think you could find, based on that usage by Luke, both in this chapter and the previous, that Luke is making a distinction between people and the men. He doesn't make it clear as to why he would be making that distinction. But in the very least, he's not talking about the whole crowd. He's talking about just the men. That's not to say that no women respond to the truth or that Luke, for some reason, sees the women as being unimportant. And the reason I even draw this to our attention is that Luke does at times refer to people, but distinguishes between men and women in his narrative. He does that in chapter 5. He does that in chapter 8, where he talks about how Paul was persecuting and hauling off both men and women to prison. He does that another time in chapter 8, as men and women are coming to Jesus, another time in Acts chapter 9, another time in Acts chapter 17, and another time in Acts chapter 22. So in other words, Paul, excuse me, Luke, at times, is referring to a group of people, and he's saying men and women. Here, he only says men, which suggests the possibility that the crowd is even bigger. This is just an estimate. The number of the men, verse 4, came to be about 5,000. We don't know how many were saved this day. Many, many people were. For whatever reason, as they got this count, this is the count that Luke was able to record for posterity, so to speak. And we know this is the Holy Spirit through Luke, as Luke is writing. But this is a massive conversion. More than the day of Pentecost. 
3,000 on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 here. Surely some of those people would have scattered out from Jerusalem, but this is the people who are there for the day of prayer, or excuse me, the hour of prayer, the regular sacrifice. That means God is doing a work in Jerusalem among his people, the Jews, the Israelites. And now he's confronting through this circumstance the leadership. The leadership now have to deal with it. And how is this orchestrated? How did this all come about? Well, two apostles went up at a regular time to the temple to pray. That's how this started. Now, did they know all that was going to be uh, take place that day? Did they have that in mind as they went? I don't believe they did. But the point that I'm trying to make is I don't think it's insignificant that it's prayer, but it's just in the regular, everyday providence in their lives that they're seeing God work in an amazing way. And in this case, it was an unexpectedly powerful way. Just because he doesn't do that doesn't mean he's not working, but sometimes, sometimes he works in a marvelous way to bring people to himself, to convert sinners, to to bring whole households and people, and in this case, a portion of this nation to himself, this nation whom he loved. And of course, it does cause these leaders to then have an issue at hand. They've already arrested Peter and John. They recognize that the crowd listened, and many believed. Verse 5, now we have the official questioning. So we have significant conversions after this confrontation, but now the official questioning. And notice Luke takes the time to describe who is there. The temple guard, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, the priests that had confronted them on the first day, now have delivered them over to the rulers, verse 5, the elders, the scribes that were gathered together, and who is there, verse 6? Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and it says all who are of high priestly descent. Now, if we've read through the Gospels, some of these names are familiar to us. Some of them aren't. John and Alexander do seem to be related to and in a special way significant within the priestly structure. But we know who Annas and Caiaphas are. Because in the Gospels, Annas and Caiaphas feature prominently in the trial of Jesus. Where Jesus is arrested, Jesus is taken to the house of Annas and then officially put on trial under Caiaphas. And it's from that questioning that they eventually take Jesus to Pilate. So these are the very ones who had condemned Jesus, who had turned Jesus over to the Roman authorities and who saw Jesus then crucified. Notice, as Luke draws attention to these individuals, he also says there's more than that. It says they're rulers, elders, and scribes. So there's many people interested in what's taking place here. And some suggest, although the word is not used here, 
that this is what would have later been called the council or uh, the word that we get from the Greek word is the Sanhedrin. This is that religious, political, ruling authority of Israel that consisted, as someone said, of chief priests or the heads of 24 classes into which the priests were divided, elders, men of age and experience, scribes and lawyers, or those learned in the Jewish law, like the Apostle Paul may have been part of that group at one point. The number of people later on through history is possibly about 70. I want you to notice, as Luke describes the scene, it says in verse 7, when they had placed them in the center. So when you think about this, this is an official trial. Those who talk about what this may have looked like talk about maybe a amphitheater style where the person is right in the middle and everyone is fanned out around and the questioning takes place of those that are on trial. And John is there. Peter is there. There's a man there with them. As you read through the words of Peter later on, verse 10 in particular, at the end of the verse, it says, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health, that this man who had been healed was also part of the trial because he was involved in what took place the day before. I don't know if that means that man spent the night in jail. That'd be an interesting thing too. I can walk. You go to jail now. But what are they asking about? Well, they're actually asking what Peter himself proclaimed the previous day. Verse 7, this is when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? So they're now inquiring as to the source of the miracle. Notice their question is a question of power. What's the source of power here? And if we read the Gospels, we know that this same group is all too ready to ascribe power to evil, to Beelzebub, to the devil himself. Mark chapter 3 records a scene where Jesus is accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub. That's what they claimed. Jesus refuted that, but that's what they claimed. That's what they thought. And so they want to know, what's the source of the power? And then on whose authority are you doing this? Remember the ministry of Jesus, even as he was in the temple and clearing the temple or doing other things in the temple, they came and asked him what his authority was. On what basis can you do this? Well, we know what basis the apostles are preaching the gospel. It's because the risen Christ has tasked them with being witnesses. Jesus said, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. They have the authority of the Messiah to be able to proclaim the truth about the Messiah. So they have Jesus' authority. And that's their question. Now, actually, this is one of those questions, if you think about it, though. It's an invitation to preach the gospel. By what authority? By whose power? Have you ever had an opportunity like that where someone just asked you a question it just leads right into preaching the gospel? Like the man one day who, who, it's a longer story, but 
I'm not going to tell you the whole story. Uh, I think I have before. But at a certain point, I asked this man about his whether or not he was saved. And I started to talk to him uh, eventually about what it meant to be saved spiritually. And as I'm talking to him about Jesus, he said, yeah, what's the big deal about Jesus? What I live with this family, and they're always talking about Jesus. What is the big deal about Jesus? I mean, talk about a an invitation to preach the gospel. This is an invitation to preach the gospel, and it might have required a night in a hotel that they weren't expecting. I'm not sure what that jail was like. They get to spend a night in an unfamiliar place, but then they get to speak to the leaders of the nation. They get to confront the very ones who crucified Jesus and tell them the truth, which they already would have if they heard what the soldiers said as they came from the tomb that day. Remember, that's it's the same crowd, right? The same crowd who on the day that Jesus rose from the dead and those soldiers had just become like dead men, but when they got up and they went and told those who had hired them the story, these men realized something had happened, something they could not explain. And here come Peter and John, who were not able to do that that day, but now they're able to do it, and they're on trial, and there's all these people. It's an opportunity for the gospel. It's an opportunity for confrontation of their sin against Jesus themselves. Just by way of application, just step away from this story for a moment and just want to encourage you that God does orchestrate opportunities for witness for us. May not always involve a, a night in jail. Sometimes we get delayed or something happens that's unusual. We have an opportunity to speak to somebody we weren't expecting to. Or someone says something that we just realize this is what God, this is what this is why I'm here. This is what this is why God orchestrated circumstances this way so that I could give this person the gospel. I'm not talking about anything mystical. I'm talking about God's providence in our lives. God's providence, which some of you know, uh, Dr. Talbert, who has been here on occasion, he's written a book on providence, and he describes providence as governing and guiding. God graciously guides and governs all events, including the free acts of men and their external circumstances, and directs all things to their appointed ends for his glory. Well, God, in his providence, not only had the day before planned and that night in jail plan, but now a trial before the leadership of Israel. The very ones who delivered Jesus over to Pilate. And it is amazing to see the grace that God gave to Peter through this. Now, this is another encouragement as we witness that when we get put in a situation we're never alone. His spirit indwells us. He is with us to help us, especially to witness for Christ. And that's what's happening here. Because as the question comes to them, look at verse seven, when they placed them in the center, they began to inquire by what power and what name have you done this? Then Peter, and Luke records a very significant statement here as Peter begins to witness to the rulers. 
It says filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Controlled by, enabled by, empowered by, helped by the Holy Spirit. He is there to help Peter. You look at Peter here, and you look at him not long before, and he's afraid to even admit that he knows Jesus. And it's at night, and it's in the presence of a servant girl who is asking him if he's a Galilean. And Peter can't admit it. And he's afraid, and he's afraid of the next question, and the next question too, but when he gets put on trial and he's right in the center of the Sanhedrin, he's right in front of all of these officials, the ones who crucified Christ, he is boldly proclaiming the gospel. But why is that? It's because of the Holy Spirit and that same spirit who is in Peter, who indwelt him, empowered him for witness. Just want to encourage you, he's the same spirit who is within us for that same purpose. No, we're not apostles but he does equip us to preach the gospel. So as Peter gives his witness here, it is first of all spirit-empowered. It's also a witness to the nation's leaders. At the end of verse 8, it says rulers and elders of the people. So if we want to summarize who these people are, we saw their names, we saw some of the groups referenced in the previous verses, but here we understand these are the ruling elite. These are the ones along with the high priest, who governed Israel. And so this would include all those prominent leaders over the tribes that administrated those tribes, governed the nation under the Roman rule. And notice as Peter preaches, gives his testimony, he addresses them. And then he, if I could say this this way, he frames what has happened. They want to know what power or what name they had Peter had done this and Peter wants to draw out the definition of this what is this what exactly is this that happened look at what he says if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well right by implication they had just imprisoned them because in part of that, for making somebody well, for, for bringing a person who had never walked to now be able to walk and leap. And that's a problem to put somebody in prison for that? This is Peter framing the issue for what it really is. In part, this is a work of God. In fact, that word benefit means good deed or good work. Sometimes it's translated that way. So this is a good thing that he did, just as Jesus did good things on the Sabbath day and was accused of breaking the law or whatever they wanted to accuse him of. Their issue was not so much the good thing as it was their strict interpretations and sometimes just false interpretations of what should be done or shouldn't be done. And Jesus rebuked them. They're worried about authority and power. This man has been healed, and this is their this is in part their attempt to grasp for power. It doesn't matter what you did. We we want the hearts of the people, and we want to teach the people, and we want to be in charge. Peter says, if we're on trial for this good thing that was done, 
he's framing the issue truthfully. And then he frames the issue in terms of who this is really about. Look at verse 10. There's boldness here. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, broadcasted on primetime television, put it in all the newspapers, let people shout it out that the reason that this happened, what was the source of this miracle, what brought this good thing about, Peter says that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. So just like his sermon to the people, remember, he, he uses this, uh, this, this emphasis on Jesus and who Jesus is. He did it back in chapter 2. He does it also in chapter 3 as he draws attention to Jesus, Jesus as the Christ. Here he calls him the Nazarene so that there would be no question as to where he was from and which Jesus this is. But the really significant thing is that again, and again, right to the rulers of Israel, he calls him Christ. This is Jesus Messiah. This is Jesus Christ. And that, that sometimes for us doesn't, doesn't necessarily carry with it all the weight that it would for this group of people. They had long been looking for the Messiah. They had long been looking for this king. They thought of him mostly as a king. But Peter, as he preached in chapter 3, is also drawing attention to the fact that he's a prophet. And of course, we know as well that he was a priest. But Peter doesn't pull back as he draws attention to the fact that this is Jesus Christ boldly proclaiming again that this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one who came in keeping with all of God's promises. Notice what else he does after he mentions Jesus Christ the Nazarene. You know, he could have admitted this. In other words, you could read it this way. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. And that would have been true. Right? It would have been true. But there's also a truth that these men need to reckon with, and it is because they were the ones who need to be charged with the crime against the king. Who's on trial? Peter and John are on trial. But as Peter is speaking now as a witness, guess who's really on trial? Guess who is now being charged with a crime? The very ones who have put him on trial. So there's an interesting interplay here between the leaders of Israel, and you could say it this way, the real leaders of Israel. I mean, who really is in charge? Who is the authority over this nation? It's not the Romans. Jesus is Messiah. This is their Messiah. These are his witnesses. These are his sent ones. Who's on trial now? They're on trial. And they're being charged with the crime of crucifying him. Notice what he says. 
Let it be known to all of you, to, the, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified. You crucified him. I'll never forget the day I had a conversation with a man after a service. I was in West Virginia. I was preaching at a church. And I, I mentioned this fact about the Jews' involvement in crucifying the Messiah. This man came up to me and he said, the Jews didn't crucify Jesus. He said, if you read the Gospels, the Jews didn't crucify Jesus, the Romans did. And he tried to make a point about the fact that the Romans were involved in the end. That the Romans were the ones who actually did the deed. So he was trying to distance the Jews in some way from crucifying Jesus. What Peter is doing here, and I think it bears out in the story of the Gospels, that really the only reason that Jesus was in the hands of the Romans was by the insistence of the Jews. The insistence of the Jews, even to the resistance of Pilate, who washed his hands, and the only reason he responded to the Jews was because he thought he had a riot on his hands and he wanted to pacify the crowd. And so he had Jesus crucified, whose hands were bloody that day. Remember what the Jews said? His blood be upon us and our children. Yes, the Jews are responsible. Yes, these leaders are responsible. If you read through the gospel story, Annas... Caiaphas, the leaders of Israel were plotting against Jesus. They were trying to, to, to get him at a time which would not arouse the crowd in such a way that they couldn't do what they wanted to do, but they wanted to kill him. And now it's that same crowd that had Jesus arrested, the same crowd who sought false testimony against him, the same crowd that turned him over to Pilate, the same crowd that persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas, the same crowd that mocked Jesus that, who, while he was on the cross, the same crowd who heard the report of the soldiers. It's the same people, the very same. And God, in his providence, did a good thing to heal this man and then place his witnesses right in the presence with everybody looking on. And Peter, with the boldness given to him by the Holy Spirit, is able to say, whom you crucified. He's convicting them. He's convicting them of their sin. But he doesn't stop there. If he stopped there, obviously, there could be judgment. And no doubt for those who did not repent, there would be judgment. But Peter goes on to say, beyond the crucifixion, he says, whom God raised from the dead. There's that story they tried to suppress. They paid the soldiers. And now on the record here in the Sanhedrin, court reporter, stop, stop it. Don't say that. Don't put that in the record. You understand what I'm saying? This is the story they tried to suppress, and now it's become prominent and public and right before their very eyes that Jesus is alive, and it is his power that has brought this about today. I love the end of verse 10 there. It says, by this, this name, this person, this one, 
this man stands here before you in good health. They can't deny it. The evidence is right there. <clears throat> this man, whom they probably themselves had walked past many times, they could not deny that something had happened, certainly a good thing in enabling this man to walk. And not only could he walk yesterday, but he's standing there in their midst, and he wouldn't be able to do that if it weren't for the name of Jesus. But Peter explains further something that was going on prophesied long before that this group of people fulfilled. Notice in verse 11, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Again, look at the boldness by Peter. He doesn't say he is the stone which was rejected by the builders. That would have been true. But he included the words that they needed to hear that it was by you, the builders. And this prophecy uttered a thousand years before Jesus had referred to. Take a look with me quickly over at Matthew 21. This isn't the first time they've heard this prophecy applied to them. Matthew chapter 21. Jesus had told a story of the landowner who had vine growers and he went on a journey and he sent back his servants to receive the benefit of the crop that was growing in his absence. And the vine growers, instead of giving the produce, they took the slaves, they beat one, they killed another, they stoned a third, the scripture says. And then he sent his son. Verse 37, Matthew 21, but afterward he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And in another Bible that I have is a red letter edition. The red letters stop because now they're speaking. And look at how they say, what is going to happen to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds of the proper season, seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls in this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And then they sought to seize him. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. It's this very prophecy about the rejection of this stone by the builders that they'd heard from Jesus himself. That was a part of why they wanted to kill him. Peter is bringing that same text back to Acts chapter 3. He's bringing that same text back up and applying it to these, the leaders of the nation. They actually fulfilled scripture by rejecting the 
the stone, which became the chief cornerstone, speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ. We don't have time to get into all of Psalm 118, but I think there's a picture there of a rejected leader by the people who then becomes the leader because God has chosen him to be the leader. And as Christ became the chief cornerstone, there's certainly thoughts about what that cornerstone is, but he's also called the foundation. Whatever image you think of when you think of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone or the foundation stone, he is integral, he is essential to the kingdom. And you can't mistreat and crucify and toss out the king because God will raise him from the dead and he will rule over his kingdom. And he will save. He will save. That's Peter's last point, at least in this section, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So this witness that Peter is giving testifies to the power of Jesus' name. He's exalting Christ as the chief cornerstone. He's exalting Christ now as the source of salvation. Careful. The only source of salvation. There is salvation in no one else and nothing else. There's an exclusivity that Peter is preaching here when he says there's salvation in no one else. And the immediate focus is this man's healing. This man who responded to the command of Peter in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, and he grasped Peter's hand and faith in what Peter said and in the name that he proclaimed, this man took Peter's hand and he stood up and Christ brought salvation, if I could say it that way, to that man, both in terms of his physical healing, but also his soul, spiritual healing. Those two are linked as you read through the Gospels. There are times where someone is healed and Jesus will say, your faith has made you whole. He recognizes that it's faith that has brought about not only the miracle, but wholeness to the person because they've now believed in Jesus Christ. And that's what's taking place. That's what has taken place. So I'm just saying the immediate issue is this man's healing but it's certainly broader than that. It's broader than that because we know Jesus provides spiritual healing as well. He brings forgiveness of sins. When he saves, he saves a person from their sins, from the penalty of their sins, progressively saves them from the practice of their sins until finally that person is glorified and they no longer sin ever again. Jesus does all of that. Jesus is a savior in every sense of the word, and he's the only savior. I don't know what you're trusting in today, but if you're not trusting in Jesus, you're trusting in something false, something that will not save you, and you need saving. Every single one of us needs saving from our sins, from the consequence of our sin. 
from the judgment that we face because of our sin. And Peter's saying here in verse 12, there is no other source of salvation. He is exclusively the source. I've been reading a little book that I bought a few weeks ago. I was down in Columbus with Abby. We were shopping at a bookstore and I found a book and it was something about the titles of some of the chapters that caught my attention. I had heard of the, the pastor before. His name was Adolf Menad. He's a French Protestant pastor. But the words that caught my attention were a dying man's regrets. And I came to learn this man in his 50s uh, got cancer suffered for several years, but then it was on his deathbed that he was preaching messages to his congregation, anybody who would gather. And as a godly man, you could expect to see some wisdom or hear some wisdom from someone who's looking death in the face. And he has a chapter just on Jesus. Uh, he, he had people gather by his bedside and he just talked about Jesus. What a wonderful thing. He said, when we think of Jesus Christ, we consider him first as man, but we soon discover that he's no ordinary man. We find there a boundless charity, a goodness always ready to come to our aid, a power always capable of delivering us, a master and a deliverer who heals the ills of the body to show that he can heal those of the soul, even the most secret and deepest miseries, a holiness without spot, a holiness of God himself brought down to earth. In a word, we have here in a human body and in a human mind, divine perfection of truth, strength, goodness, and freedom from sin, which no man ever possessed or imagined. And this attracts us to him as one who we instinctively know alone has the power to grant us every deliverance we need. But then he says this, he says, but soon on reading the scripture and hearing him speak, this mystery begins to be solved but by another mystery still more profound. We learn that our Lord Jesus Christ, for such as the man whom we have been just considering, born by a supernatural birth, is not only son of man, but at the same time, son of God. Son of man, that is to say man. Son of God, that is to say God. He has a virtue, a power, a holiness, and goodness all divine because he is God. He is the express image of his person and the brightness of his glory, and in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh, God being able to say to his disciples, as we've just now heard it read, he who has seen me has seen the Father. This is who Jesus is, the God-man. His very name, as the angel proclaimed it, he explained it. He says, he shall save his people from their sins. Can he save in other ways? Yes, he can. Yes, he did. He saved this man. He enabled him to heal. But he also granted him salvation as that man put his trust in Jesus' name. And could I say this? He will save you too if you put your trust in his name. Do you need to put your trust in his name? Have you put your trust in his name? When I say in his name, it's in his person, who he is. 
I believe I'm talking to some who need to put their trust in Jesus' name. There is salvation in no one else. No one else. And what does Peter say? There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This is a local sermon to a nation, a nation to whom God had promised the Messiah would come. But Peter extends this thought of the salvation of Christ to everything under heaven. There's no other name. Name someone. It's not that person. It's not that philosopher. It's not that false god. It's not that emperor, even though Caesar Augustus had been called son of God and savior of the world. It's not the emperor. Augustus is lying. He's in dust probably now, right? Jesus is alive, and he has the power to save. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Can I just encourage us who know this and believe this? Why don't we preach the gospel? Why don't we preach the good news? There are people who don't know this, who are still searching for some other source of salvation, or they're trying to get it by the good deeds that they're doing. They're not going to find it that way. Your neighbor, your friend, your family member, I know it gets difficult when it comes to those relationships that are closer to us. God can help you. He's the only Savior. They will never be saved any other way. I could be talking to someone today, and you need to to bow your knee today and put your trust in Christ today. Don't delay any longer. There's no reason for delay. I do pray, and I will today, for the salvation of souls, of people who attend but have never made a profession or who may be living in a false profession. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about living somewhere forever. May God do the work that only he can do. Let's pray. Lord, we confess this truth that Peter proclaimed, and certainly your spirit spoke, you recorded for us these words. We confess there's salvation in no one else. Those of us who truly believe. And we pray, Lord, that you'd bring those who have not yet confessed, or maybe those who have confessed, but really it was not a true confession. Bring them, Lord, to understand and know and believe the truth that they might have forgiveness of sins through faith, repentance, 
trust in Jesus Christ alone. Help us, Lord, who know the truth to proclaim it. Give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.